Hey friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. If you were stuck in a cave for months and you had no idea what time of day it was, your body would still have approximately a 24-hour day. And that's because you have a master clock in your brain. It coordinates all those other clocks in your body. All the phases of all those clocks are aligned. Now, we don't live in a cave. We live in a world with a 24-hour environment, which is why we really need these circadian rhythms in the first place. And so to coordinate those internal rhythms with the outside world, we take in these environmental cues like light and food. Those are really the two strongest ones Exercise, social interactions also play a role, but light and food seem to be the strongest cues to reset those clocks in your body. That's Emily Manoogian, PhD. And this is episode 162 of the Plant Proof Podcast. beautiful friends. Welcome back to another episode. Here we are. An absolute pleasure to be here with you. And for those who are tuning in for the first time, thank you so much for finally joining us, gracing us with your presence. I'm Simon Hill, host of this show, nutritionist, physiotherapist, and author. Please do sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. every living organism has circadian rhythms. That's because it's really a basic part of how all living things coordinate with their environment and adapt to a changing day. So your body, your plant or whatever have you can do what it needs to do to survive in the current environment. Circadian is just Latin for about a day. And so when we're talking about circadian rhythms, we're talking about rhythms that are approximately 24 hours long. It's a daily rhythm. There are rhythms that are shorter than a day. There's rhythms that are longer than a day. You know, there's annual rhythms, there's tidal rhythms, all these other things. Um, But when we're thinking about our day-to-day lives, we frequently are thinking about circadian rhythm. Your cognitive abilities vary across the day. Your mood varies across the day. Even your ability to edit things varies. In fact, a lot of journalists tend to work late at night because it's easier to edit for some reason later at night. Um, And I think we all kind of know we're, you know, maybe more alert or more moody at different times of day. It's just kind of the way that that goes. But if we're thinking about it kind of like, say, physiologically, let's take glucose regulation as an example. So when you are asleep, your body doesn't expect you to have intake of food because you're sleeping. But you still need to be able to have glucose available for the tissues throughout your body, right? So to do that, it will naturally release glucose stores that you have into the body and it will shut down insulin secretion because insulin would normally take the glucose that you have in your blood and store it for later, right? So that's a natural way that your body can help you maintain that during the night. In the morning, that reverses. So it will then change so that now you are having more insulin secretion so you're able to regulate that as you get glucose coming in. So that's one very simple process. But the circadian system helps coordinate all this. So for instance, during the day, you are usually exposed to light and light also 
suppresses melatonin. Well, when melatonin comes out, when it's dark, that's actually going to help suppress insulin secretion as well, which is also going to help you not need new calories coming in during the night. And so it's one of these things where it kind of prepares your body for whatever it would need to do. That's kind of one example, but you could look at this at almost any other aspect of your life, like where your blood pressure regulation, your body temperature regulation, any of those things are all going to be coordinated. So they're really going to prepare you for what you would need to do. Even if you look at hormone secretion, pretty much every hormone is regulated by the time that it's going to come out. I think cortisol is a really great example where you actually get a peak in cortisol just before you would normally wake up to help you wake up for the day. And then that's going to damper back down. And so you see all of these different aspects of your physiology kind of change and fluctuate to prepare your body for whatever it would need to do. So you want to be able to digest food when you would normally be eating. You want your body to be able to rest and repair digestive tracts when you're sleeping all of those different things. And so when we say coordinating clocks, it's really making sure that all the clocks that are out through your body, throughout your body are getting the correct signal. So they're doing their job at the proper time of day. If you give conflicting cues, you can then kind of override a system and not get a proper rest or a proper fast or, you know, proper sleep, whatever it may be. Or you can kind of send these kind of conflicting cues. So for instance, if we're talking about sleep per se, So the circadian system doesn't make you sleep, it consolidates sleep. So there's some really cool studies that looked at if you kind of break the circadian system, it's not that you'd get less sleep, it's that it would be in random spurts throughout the day. You would have no sleep consolidation. And so you wouldn't get through a full sleep cycle, you wouldn't get the same type of restoration. So that's one example of what the circadian system is properly doing. Now, one of the ways that it coordinates those things and helps you get asleep is by also coordinating when you get light and are awake and when you get food. So you don't get these external stimuli coming in that could override the part of the, you know, significance of rest that you would get while you're asleep. So doing things like getting a lot of really bright light at night or staying up and drinking or eating really late at night kind of send these conflicting cues and can stop you from being able to get that rest on a given night. Over time, this becomes a much bigger problem. And this kind of gets to how the circadian system is set up. So step back for just a second. So if we think about how this works internally, if you were stuck in a cave for you know months and you had no idea what time of day it was, just say you had ample access to food and whatever, and you didn't know the time of day, your body would still have approximately a 24-hour day. Wouldn't be exactly 24 hours. Everyone is slightly different little bit shorter, a little bit longer, but it's usually within about 15 minutes of 24 hours. So you don't need external cues to, for your body to be able to do this. And that's because you have a, a master clock in your brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. Sounds complicated. It's just a geographical term for where it is. And it coordinates all those other clocks in your body. And it's not like everything is in the exact same you know, part of their cycle. It's just all the phases of all those clocks are aligned. Now, we don't live in a cave. We live in a world with a 24-hour environment, which is why we really need these circadian rhythms in the first place. And so to coordinate those internal rhythms with the outside world, we take in these environmental cues like light and food. Those are really the two strongest ones that we're aware of. Exercise, social interactions also play a role, but light and food seem to be the strongest cues to reset those clocks in your body. So light is going to most dramatically affect that master clock in your brain, the SCN. And so that's 
really the biggest way to shift your sleep patterns, to shift your behavioral patterns. But food is really interesting because it directly affects all of the molecular clocks throughout your body. It's like an override button to the time of day that it is. And so if you get light really late or really early or middle of the night when your body wouldn't expect it regularly, it's like you're constantly resetting your clock, right? Do you have a clock and you say, okay, I think I know what time of day it is. Cool. Okay. We're sleeping now. Okay. Sun just got here. I guess it's morning, right? And you, it, it, if you did it one day, it'll probably ignore it. It's a pretty robust system. But if you keep doing it or you change the time that it gets all those cues, it's like you're tra constantly trying to reset a clock that can't instantly reset. Similarly with food, same kind of idea. If you constantly are having food at kind of erratic times of day, maybe very late or very early, and you're eating at really er kind of erratic times, again, you're sending these really conflicting cues to the time of day that it actually is. And so when you continue to have these kind of erratic or shifting schedules, it can kind of break the clock over time because these clocks can only shift maybe up to an hour a day. And so if we have these variations of two, three hours, or you're constantly changing time zones, your body can't keep up. And eventually you'll pretty much just kind of break down the system or at least decrease the robustness of the rhythms. Short term, you might, it might be something kind of like what you would experience with jet lag. You might feel not quite right. You might feel a little weak. You might be fatigued. You might get a headache. You might not be sleeping quite well. I think sleep disruption is a pretty common one. And then, you know, sleep disruption itself can lead to a lot of negative consequences, especially acutely. You, you know, you don't feel quite well if you haven't slept well. So a lot of those things where people can live with it, and I think that's why one of the reasons it's so common is you learn to live with these little discomforts. It's not like a broken leg you have to address immediately, but it can build up over time. Unfortunately, a lot of our shift workers are essential workers. They're people we need and you know rely on as a community. They're really kind of the heroes of our societies, but it does do damage over time. So, you know, short term, maybe you just don't feel quite right. You get a, you lose a couple nights of sleep or something like that. Long term, there are pretty severe consequences. So it's been pretty well documented that circadian disruption, chronic circadian disruption, such as shift work, leads to increased risk for cardiovascular disease, metabolic disease. It's actually even known as a carcinogen by the World Health Organization. So we know that it compromises your immune system, can lead to increased inflammation, we know that it disrupts the metabolic system. Um, it's likely linked to increased weight or weight gain or at least decreased ability to lose weight. And it kind of compromises the whole system. I like to think of it as you're kind of a worse version of yourself, right? It's like everything is just a little bit off to the point where you're constantly building up slow-term damage. And so over time, this can cause a lot of problems. So time-restricted eating is just the concept of having a consistent eating window daily that allows you to have feeding dur during a given window of time and then fasting during a given window of time that stays consistent. And the whole idea is to be able to support your circadian system. So your body is able to anticipate when you would be eating, you eat during that window of the day, and then it knows when you would be fasting and you stay fasting for the other period of time. So one key difference between intermittent fasting and time-restricted eating is that it's a consistent eating window. It's the same period of time every day. It's not 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. one day and then 10 p.m. to 8 p.m. the next day. That's not the idea. The idea is that it's the same, you know, however long, usually 8 to 12 hours, but it's that same window every day. 
The second defining factor is that time-restricted eating does not require any type of caloric restriction, but we are not overtly decreasing calories. So it's just saying you have a consistent daily eating window of eating um, and a consistent daily period of fasting that allows you to use food as an external cue to help coordinate your body's circadian system. As far as trying to optimize it, I think what we've kind of seen is delaying breakfast a little bit and advancing your last meal a little bit earlier in the day. So it shouldn't be anything super extreme where you wait until halfway through your day to have your first bite of food. I think that there actually is some evidence to say, you know, only, you know, binge eating kind of later in the day does have negative health consequences. If anything, you know, eating in your first half of your day does seem to be better. That being said, eating a huge amount very early or eating just very early before your body would be ready for it can be just as harmful. So very early eating, very late eating are both bad things. The compromise seems to be actually just the most natural and kind of intuitive of you should be eating really when you're active. So that usually means waiting to eat for an hour or two after you wake up. And then that's when you would have the first thing of your day eating throughout the part of the day where you're active and then stopping eating for about three or four hours before you go to bed. And if you're in bed for at least, you know, hopefully eight hours or at least at rest for eight hours, and then you don't eat for three hours before bed and you don't eat after the first hour you wake up, you're already at a 12 hour eating window. Um, And that's not a very restrictive schedule. Exercise does different things for you at different times of day. And it does also feed back to your circadian clock. So it is going to change, you know, the nutrient availability in muscles and it's going to change what your body needs. And that's going to all go back into the master pacemaker to kind of help coordinate the system. So exercise is also an external cue that can affect these things. So light is really cool. I did most of my PhD on using light as, as a main cue. And it's a cool system and your body relies on it so much because light is a constant, right? It's always going to fluctuate reliably through year to year. So you see it it as an extremely important role, for instance, like seasonally reproductive animals or animals that hibernate to know what time of year it is to change their complete physiology. It's really pretty crazy because you might have heat waves or you might have food shortages and those things don't always stay the same season to season, but light does. And so light is kind of evolved to be this master cue to all living organisms, circadian systems. So light really is very potent for our behavior and when we sleep and all these other things. So light is, is really the main, main cue there as far as our behavior goes. I think you could keep it as simple as the general rule is to get as much bright light as you can, again, in the, the first half of your day or just the active parts of your day. And then as the day goes on to decrease that light, your body was prepared you know, and created really to have natural lighting cycles, right? Afternoon is literally supposed to be like, you know, 12 p.m. is the middle of the day. Midnight was literally the middle of night, you know, and our bodies were meant for that. There's actually a really cool study that came out from Ken Wright's group in University of Colorado, where they took people camping for about a week, and they only allowed them access to firelight. And by doing that, everyone's kind of biological rhythms shifted a little bit earlier because we really disrupt what our body would expect to get light with all of this artificial light. We constantly have lights on to, you know, help be entertained or be able to work or whatever it may be later into the night. And that does shift us a little bit later, chronically, kind of over time. 
And so if you didn't have light, artificial light, that's probably what your body would want. So I generally say try to get as much natural light as you can during the day. If you live in part of the country or, you know, the world where you're not getting much light, light boxes can be quite helpful to get a lot of that really strong, bright light. And then later in your day, especially a couple hours before you go to sleep, dimming those lights, those artificial lights down, trying to block blue light, those can really help. Most iPhones and actually most Androids now too, naturally will cut blue light at a certain time of day. Like they actually usually match up to outside sunlight when the sun sets, they'll naturally change now. And you'll notice because your screen comes a little bit orange, um, the colors aren't quite as bright, does help as well. I still think there's more going on there to, you know, really figure out how big of an effect that has and if it's able to offset some things. Because again, a lot of screens like a computer or a phone will naturally, you can kind of block some of the blue light to help with that. But TVs don't really have that. So in that case, having, you know, the blue blocker glasses can be helpful in that way to let your body kind of get into that phase where it is ready to sleep and stop that cue from telling your brain that it's time to be awake. The other kind of cool thing is your internal system is actually the least sensitive to light in the morning because it expects it. And it's most sensitive to light at night because it needs to know if it has to stay awake. So it gets more sensitive to light. So this artificial light has a bigger influence on us at night than it does in the morning. So we need that super bright natural light in the day and we need to have much dimmer lights at night. And it can be as something as just that you normally have two or three lights on in the room turn it down to one or two lights, you know, just get it dimmer as the night goes on. I think the more I learned about this, I would just get into this habit of every so often just going and turning a light off and then just like you get used to it. And then every so often go turn another light off because you really don't need that much light. Your eyes adjust to it, but having a lot of bright light really does send kind of an overriding cue to stay awake. But people have different relationships with light. It's actually referred to as a chronotype, which is kind of how your body's biology is related to other environmental cues, mainly light. Um, Some people are delayed, you know, we frequently hear like morning lark or, you know, you're a night owl or something like that. It's heavily rooted in biology. And if you're a later type, I don't think that's a problem. I would just say, I like to think of it relative to your sleep schedule more than to a clock hour. There we go. How did that one land for you? I hope that you found it interesting, instructive, illuminating, all the things. Of course, if you did, please do share with your friends and family on the socials. The more people that we can help together, the better. And while you're there, make sure that we're connected too. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at plant underscore proof. That's at plant underscore proof. And on that lovely note, It's time to bring this one to a close. Thank you so much for hanging out with me. I appreciate you and I look forward to repeating it all again in a few days time. Until then, remember, more plants, my friends, more plants.